Welcome to the XR Atlas podcast, where we, you and I, explore the latest developments in the XR, AI, and metaverse industry, and to also see with various speakers how these technologies are shaping the collective future of the human race. I'm your host, Babatunde Fatai, and I have been passionate about XR and been in the XR ecosystem as an XR software engineer for the past five years. I try my best to work on projects that facilitate the adoption of XR, AI, and metaverse technologies across Africa and around the world. Today, we are joined by Michaela Oland, an Emmy and Webby award-winning creative strategist and impact producer focusing on experiential AR, VR, and metaverse. Michaela has always been fascinated by storytelling, particularly visual storytelling, and how it can impact a collective mindset. This led her to explore forms of XR as well as dance and movement. And now, with a background in journalism and film producing, she acts as a creative consultant, blending traditional media with VR, AR, AI, motion capture, and 360-degree films. She helps brands create moving experiences for their audience while creating a social impact. In 2018, she received an Emmy and Webby Award for Capturing Everest, a documentary that came with the collaboration with brands like Sports Illustrated and so on. I was really excited to speak to Michaela. I learned a lot from speaking to her and through this conversation with her, I was able to explore XR in storytelling, some impact-oriented projects she has worked on. I was inspired and I hope you as the audience also get inspired, not just by her works, but also by the way she went about solving problems, taking on tasks. And for ladies out there, I think she can act as some sort of inspiration to show that there is the ecosystem out there that also supports women in this particular industry. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I would like to say, I've seen a couple of your works and I love them. So just saying that up front. Welcome on the show. Let's begin. This particular episode, at least, is focused on storytelling in XR. And if we are able to, because I'm a guy, not a lady, but if we're able to, at least, we'll touch on the role of women in XR. I will only ask questions. Well, I hope you can clarify some of those questions, at least for ladies out there. Let's start. Can you give a bit of introduction about yourself and how do you define yourself as a creator? Sure. Thank you for having me. So a little bit about me, I actually started my journey with dance and performance. I went to school for journalism, but my family forbade me to pursue my dance career, even though I loved dancing. And so, of course, I ignored my family's wishes and I pursued my dance career. And halfway through my university experience, I actually left school to perform on cruise ships. And when I came back to finish my degree, I decided to continue performing on amusement parks. And during this time, I was learning about nonfiction storytelling. I was learning about photo and video and I was learning about written word, but I was also being immersed in these amazing environments in the theme park. And I slowly started to realize that journalism was really missing immersion and interactivity, just like what I was doing as a dancer or a performer. And I noticed that when people of all ages felt safe inside of a story, that that's when they really started to create lasting memories. And that's also when the story started to have a true impact on them, because not only did they create memories, but they also created behavior changes. So for example, If there's a young boy who's never been exposed to a Star Wars movie, but he visits Disneyland and he experiences the Star Wars experience, then suddenly he's obsessed with Star Wars and he loves it. He watches the movies and he does this. And I know that's a lot more in like a capitalism entertainment, but we can do the same thing with impact storytelling, right? Like what makes somebody interested in a theme, in a topic? And 
one of the best ways to do that is by immersing them in the story, allowing them to interact with the story, giving them agency to choose how they would move throughout the story, but also making them feel safe to do all these things. And so um, what I feel is journalism isn't always very safe. It doesn't feel very safe. I think it's very exploitive and it tends to be very redactive, especially because it's based in communities where people go in who are not from those communities. They steal stories. I think stories have value. I think stories are powerful. And then they use them for their own community's purposes. And for me, I don't know if identifying myself as a creator is something that I do without also saying I identify myself as a bridge. I like to connect the story and the community who's telling that story to the best way of telling their story. So it's not always virtual reality. It's not always augmented reality. Sometimes it's interactive video. Sometimes it's an immersive film and that's okay. And I like to make sure that I'm connecting and creating a safe environment, not only for the people whose story we're telling, but also for the community and the audience who gets to see that story. So if the audience isn't comfortable with a VR headset, how do we make them comfortable with a VR headset? If the audience isn't comfortable with new technology like volumetric video and augmented reality, how do I get them comfortable? So my creative process is very collaborative and I really try to think of it as everybody is equal. I don't like to think of myself as some great, amazing director or some great, amazing creator. It's more of like, I just get to facilitate the conversations, facilitate the production and facilitate the end goal for the community or for the person or for the organization. Thank you very much for that definition of yourself as a creator. I think it's very inspiring. So I want to ask this. What is your earliest memory of XR? What is the earliest you can remember? The first time you think you came across XR and how did that imprint with you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I had just graduated from university. I was still working at amusement parks. I had started working in the film industry as a production assistant just to get my hands wet on big production sets. And I realized I didn't enjoy the film industry. It felt very intense. And again, I just think that for someone like me who likes to be very collaborative, it felt very much like there was a hierarchy. And so I volunteered at a journalism event that was being held in Los Angeles. And at that journalism event, there was a special panel about innovation in journalism and interactivity and immersion in journalism. And I was like, I want to go to that panel. So I did all my volunteer things I needed to do just so I could attend that panel. And when I remember attending it and they were starting to say these words like virtual reality and augmented reality, and I didn't even realize this technology even existed. This was in 2016. And my mind was blown because the reality is I can tell people immersive and interactive storytelling is the strongest type of storytelling, but that's very hard to scale. I don't expect the New York Times to suddenly build a whole building for every single time they want to tell a story. It's also very expensive for people to travel to places. We have museums. Museums are great places for people to be immersed in story and interact with story. But the reality is museums tell stories about centuries of time. And there's so many unique perspectives in those centuries. Like if we dedicated that amount of real estate, physical real estate to people's singular authentic stories or singular events that happen, imagine the kind of impact we can create. But it's very expensive and it's not accessible. So when I discovered that virtual reality was a viable technology, I said, this is a way we can do it. This is the way we can immerse people in the story. This is the way we can have people interact with the story, but we can make it accessible and scalable 
available and less expensive than a physical building or physical installation of some sort. And so I remember sitting in the audience getting chills and hot flashes. And I just remember like running up the panelists and be like, how do I start? Like, how do I get involved? And they were like, well, there's not a big community, but you can start by getting your own 360 camera. You can start by filming your own stories. You can start by learning the 360 video or immersive video production process. And that's what I started doing in my free time as I was working. Yeah. Wow. So 2016 was the first time you came in contact with virtual reality, augmented reality. And between now and then, that's approximately six years, I think. I think you've done quite a lot in this space. So can you explain what you think the difference is between immersive storytelling and the normal traditional way of storytelling? What do you think the essential difference is? I think the essential difference is activity. If you think about it, we as humans are active, right? We wake up every day, we walk around a space, we make ourselves breakfast, we interact with our loved ones or our friends, we leave the home. So ever since you were born, you've lived in a spatial experience. You've lived in an experience that asks you to move around and that asks you to touch things, that asks you to smell things, that asks you to taste things, right? Our five senses are the way that we interact with the world. And I think that traditional storytelling, not that I still don't respect it, because I still think the traditional storytelling foundations, like a good story or a good narrative or something that engages people, these are all foundations we're working on. But if you look at mediums like photography or filmmaking or even the written word, those can engage a certain level of audience, but they're very passive. Even sitting in a theater and watching a movie or sitting in a play and watching a theatrical performance, they're very passive. They're very much like, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to allow it all to come towards me. Versus I think what's the difference with immersive or interactive storytelling is that there's a level of action that we're asking the audience to take. There's a level of agency that we're asking the audience to take. Even if it's as simple as picking an object up in VR, or even if it's as simple as turning their chair around so they can see what's behind them. What it allows you to do, it allows you to feel like you're having a spatial experience with the story. So the story is not so 2D it's three-dimensional. And I think that that already stimulates our minds in a way that they haven't been stimulated before. Because usually when we tell stories, it's very 2D. That being said, there are very much 3D-esque stories that have, have been around forever, right? Like I think about sitting around a campfire with your friends or sitting around an environment like a bar with your friends and you're telling stories and you're going back and forth and you're drinking and you're having this experience, right? And you're creating memories like, hey, remember that one time we went camping or hey, remember that one time we went to the bar? The memory was created, not just because of the stories that were told, but because of the interaction you were having, because of the immersion you were having, because of the five senses being constantly stimulated. So that's why I think that this level of storytelling, I don't think I say it's for everybody because I don't think everything is for everybody. But I do think that it is important to recognize that we are an active community. That's why gaming is so, so, so popular and becoming such a large industry because people love to feel like they have agency on the story. They like to feel like they impact story. And so if we continue this level of gaming online and now gaming in our real life where we walk around and we get breakfast and we do all these things, why not tell stories that integrate all of that? together. I see. So at least to an extent for you, immersive storytelling is the way it differs from traditional storytelling would be the ability for one to interact with the story, for one to get all senses involved. Is this correct compared to traditional storytelling? 
That's correct. I mean, again, I would say there are traditional storytelling methods that utilize that. But when we're talking about the westernized storytelling, right, the photo, the video, the like standard journalism storytelling tends to be newspaper, online, written word, photography, filmmaking, right, documentary work. These all tend to be what Western journalism culture, they value as storytelling methods. So what inspired or sparked your interest in immersive storytelling? And is there anything in your background that's actually influenced that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. When I first realized that I could do my own immersive film, people would tell me, well, that's really difficult to do because, you know, traditional film is all about lenses, right? Like, what is my close-up shot? What is my medium shot? What is my wide shot? And you get to control what's inside the lens. And that's, to me, is like, that's not interesting. I don't want to be able to control what's inside the lens constantly. I love the idea of just putting down a camera and allowing somebody to see everything that's happening all around them. And I think that comes from my dance background. I think I've always thought about life as a 3D platform, not just because I'm a human that's walking around in a 3D platform and interacting, but because I'm a dancer and a performer and a mover. So choreography for me has always been on a three-dimensional plane. It's never been 2D flat. I only think about things as A and then B. I really think about A and then back up B and then back up C because choreography and dance is so much about depth and it's so much about what's going on for the audience. And even like social dancing is very 360 and very all around you, whether you're on the dance floor looking all around you or you're on the side of the dance floor. And so I think taking these kind of background in dance and applying it to 360 video, applying it to virtual reality storytelling has been one of the most foundational parts of how I approach immersive interactive stories. I see. So you are an associate producer for Capturing Everest, if I'm correct, a project that went on to win the Emmys Award for Outstanding Digital Innovation. What was that project like? How did you come on that project? How did you find that project? And what was the journey around that project like? Great question. So after I started doing my own 360 films, I met somebody whose name is Robert Hernandez. He's a professor of journalism at USC in California. And I showed him some of my 360 video work. I showed him my 360 video resume that I created. And he was really impressed. And he sent my work out to his colleagues. And one of his colleagues was someone who worked for Time Magazine in the Time Magazine Innovation Department. And she hired me to come in I actually moved from California to New York City. And while working for Time Magazine, they own a lot of, at the time, they owned a lot of different properties. So Time Magazine also owned Sports Illustrated. They also owned People Magazine. They also owned Sunset Magazine and Coastal Living. Like it was a whole conglomerate of media, basically. And so I worked with all of those properties, all of those magazines as their VR, AR, 360 video specialist. And this project had already started when I came to work for Time Magazine. They had already filmed the climbers climbing Mount Everest and they were just in post-production. And what happened was the editing process went a little askew with one of the partners. And so they brought the editing process into the actual home of Time Magazine to do the editing in-house. And the editing in-house fell to me because I was the only person who knew how to use 360 video. And so I had been watching the footage and I had been helping produce. And I really said, you know, this is how I would tell the story. Here's all the beats I would hit. Here's the places we would start and stop. And so I edited that project. I had the help of a sound mixer. I put it all together, everything approved, and then it went live. And the reason I think that that won the Digital Innovation Award, a couple of reasons. 
first, it was one of the longest documentaries to be done in 360 film to date. No one had ever done something longer than 20 minutes. Our piece was four episodes long that equated to around 40 minutes. The other part was that it was a multi-suite of items. So there was a cover of Sports Illustrated magazine that actually launched into an augmented reality experience. The pages within the magazine, physical magazine also launched an augmented reality experience. And that was all connected to the 360 video documentary. And then there was actual written articles about the people that had climbed. And one of those people was an Ameri- the first ever paraplegic who was American to ever climb Mount Everest. So there was many layers of it. And I think a lot of it had to do with the overall ecosystem of digital storytelling that we created, but also length and the experience of 360 that we did. So what was the stress like? And when I say stress, I mean the hard work that happened behind the scene. Yes, they've recorded, but that editing, I would imagine, is something very stressful. How did you cope and what was that stress like? I mean, the reality is whenever you're creating and making a project, there's always that level of stress, especially when it comes closer and closer to the deadline. I think that there was a lot of me being by myself, just in an edit suite, trying to figure out how to edit, trying to figure out how to do graphics, trying to figure out how to time this, how to score it. So it was a lot of me being by myself. I think a lot of people think, oh, like such a cool process. You got to work with a whole team of people. But the reality is it was me and my managers who were approving the edits and approving the cuts. And so it was definitely a labor of love, which is why I'm really proud of the piece today. And the stress of it was there, but it was more the pressure of it because there was so much riding on this 360 video documentary, getting out the door and making sure that it was at the same quality that Sports Illustrated would have quality of content, quality of storytelling, quality of work, and making sure that I tried to expand that quality to VR as well. Felt like a lot of pressure because this was also the first time Sports Illustrated had ever done a VR film. This was also the first time a VR film had ever been done about Mount Everest and climbing Mount Everest. So it was all very high pressure. So a unique point of interest of mine would be what sort of tool does one use to edit 360? At least which one did you use to edit the 360 video? So 360 video is exactly what it sounds like. It's just video that is traditional video content that is captured using multiple lenses. And then those lenses are either stitched together manually or they're stitched together automatically. And then from those multiple lenses being stitched together, you basically create a round sphere or spherical videos, what they call it, of footage. So someone is basically like inside of the sphere of footage. And the way that that sphere spins is through a metadata. It just gets wrapped up in the metadata. And so when you look at it flat, there's a very clear warping that happens on the top and a very clear warping that happens on the bottom. And that is usually a good sign to know that that's a 360 video or a 360 photo. And so you use very traditional video editing techniques when you work with that type of footage. So I used Premiere Pro. At the time, Premiere Pro started working with a couple of VR plugins. And so I started working with those plugins. But it's very similar to like traditional video editing. It just takes a special kind of person, I think, who's used a lot of 360 video and footage to know the kind of timing and pacing that works best for 360 video, because it's not similar to 2D. 2D is a lot of cuts, it's a lot of edits, and 360 tends to be like, you need to sit in a moment, and then you need to move through a moment, right? So it's a different kind of pacing that happens, but it's very standard tools, which is why anyone who's interested in getting involved with VR, I always tell them, if they don't have a background using Unreal or Unity, these big game engines, 
and they don't have a background as a developer or an engineer, then the first place to always start, which is a lot more creative and a lot more easy to jump into right away, is 360 film. Thank you very much for that answer. Let's move to another project of yours, which is face-to-face. So face-to-face was chosen from a record number of high-quality entries. And it was awarded, I think, the 2018 Alternate Reality Commission and the Alternate Reality Virtual Reality Award. I'm sorry if I butchered that, but yeah. Can you give a bit more info about the face-to-face story first, not what you did? Because I found that story quite interesting. Can you talk a bit more about the face-to-face story? Sure. Yeah, so... The story came to me through a colleague in journalism. She'd been working with this photographer who was documenting this woman's life. And the photographer had been documenting for almost three years, I believe. And when she told me that the woman was looking for somebody who could help make the story feel more alive to people, I was like, well, that sounds like something I'd be interested in looking at. And then they told me what the project was and what it was about. And I was really compelled. So for anyone here who doesn't like anything graphic or violent, feel free to like skip through this part of the podcast. But basically the story is about a woman who was shot in the face and miraculously she survived. And now she wears a bandana to cover up her scarring at home. But in day-to-day life, she wears a facial prosthetic and she's missing both her eyes and her nose and the upper palate of her mouth. And so the reality is she lives a little bit differently from all of us, but she also lives exactly like all of us, right? She's a mother, she's a daughter, she cooks, she cleans, she works out. And so I think the part about face-to-face that I really wanted to bring to life was the fact that this woman, even if she seems very different, we didn't want her to feel redacted to a gun violence victim. We wanted her to feel like she was her whole self, her whole human self. And Mm -hmm. so that's where the start of the creative came from. I see. Can you give a bit more detail about the sort of creativity that had to go into that? How did you approach that particular story? So the photojournalist had been taking these incredible photos throughout this woman's life the last few years. And so that became foundation for our experience. We had this idea not to just do something digital, but also something physical. So we really wanted to do something that had you come into a physical environment. And so we wanted to marry the idea of being a part of this woman's life with learning about this woman's life. So we decided to first, we casted the audience. This is like a big part of what I try to do when I start the creative process is who is my audience? What is my audience supposed to be? And so my audience for this is a guest in her home. So how do I make sure that you are a guest in her home? And one thing you think about is your living room, right? What does your living room tell you about yourself as a person? If I invite you to my home and I have you sit on my couch and you're looking at my shelves and you see Legos and you see um, board games and you see books about photography, you get to know me just by sitting in my living room and observing these things in my living room. Now imagine if I allowed you to look through my drawers and I allowed you to kind of open up cabinets. And so we started you we started the audience first in her living room. So we recreated her living room, a physical installation and very a la escape room. We encouraged the audience to open things, to explore things, to look at things. So one of those was a photo album. So the photo album had her own, the woman's personal photos, but also the photojournalist's photos. The walls of the living room had also the photojournalist's um, photos. So this was a photo gallery, but it was a photo gallery that was hidden within the story, right? So we were still showcasing photojournalist's work. The woman has a 
children. And so in her home, we noticed her children have a, their own little beanbag corner with stickers and things on the wall. So we created a little kid corner and we rolled out a yoga mat and some weights because she loves to work out. And so we noticed the way people interacted with the environment. On the video, we also had home video footage from the woman's life before she was shot. And so you got to see her as who she was before the incident as well. And so we basically immersed you in the physical environment of this story. Then from there, one at a time, we had audience members come into our reconstructed bathroom. So instead of it being this like, all right, now come into the VR space, we made the bathroom the VR space because it was an intimate space. If you needed to sit down, you could sit down on the toilet, which we always thought was really cool. But we also recognize that she puts her facial prosthetic on in the bathroom. So we had you put on a facial prosthetic VR headset because what happens when you don't have eyes, you're blind. What happens when you put on a VR headset, you're blind. And so we felt this was really important. And so we built VR headsets from scratch with facial prostheses. And instead of it being like, you need to be blue eyes and light skin like this woman, we had the skin tones be eight different skin tones, eight different eye colors. So it was less about you creating yourself as a woman or as this person and more saying, this is what I choose for myself. And so the VR headset went on and then we had you watch a VR documentary. And the documentary basically just took you into a day in her life. And then she tells you a lot about the incident and what happened to her. And that's all through voiceover. And so we played with the idea of using traditional 360 video, 2D fisheye lens video. We used Google tilt brush. We used actual physical photography. And so we kind of created this orchestra of experience inside the VR. And once you take that off and you finish that experience, your last piece is the kitchen. And the kitchen has like a dining room table set up. And in the kitchen, you go through this video experience where you tell her things about yourself and she tells you things about herself and that dictates which video you watch. And um, that's a way to get to know her better. And it's a fun fact game, right? So if you like drinking, she talks to you about how much she loves wine. If you like nature, she tells you about how much she loves butterflies, right? So again, it's this idea of humanizing her and who she is. As you exit the installation, um, we gave you a photo of yourself and the photo of yourself was the image that we took of you while you were wearing the VR headset. Well, I would like to say that project is an inspiring project sincerely. It is, I lack words for it because I went through getting in contact with the project while researching you. I think the way you helped her tell her story is actually inspiring, but really great job on that particular project. Which project would you say has been your proudest to date? Maybe one that would not stick it yet. Yeah. I mean, they're all my proudest for different reasons, but I think the one recently that I feel most connected to is Macau, which is the story about children in the Philippines who swim to school. So I'm Filipino-American. My mom is Filipino. Her parents immigrated here from the Philippines, but I've never really been able to connect to where I come from and who I am in that way. And being able to collaborate with a Filipino organization, being able to collaborate with Filipino animators, being able to tell the story about children, being able to work on a piece that doesn't use dialogue. So we're really thinking about inclusion. The animated piece that we decided to tell was a story about empowerment and a story about hope and a story about innovation from this young Filipino girl who's sick of swimming to school and starts to invent all these cool different ways that she wants to go to school. 
when then of course her little brother's antagonizing her the whole time because he wants her attention. And I think that creating that story for me was really important because it felt very much like we were trying to be as authentic as possible to the Filipino culture, not only because we did the work to research and we didn't and we did the work to travel to Cebu, but we also worked with Filipinos. We paid Filipinos to tell their story. We used the United States of American budget, but we put 75% of that back into the Filipino talent who were working in VR. And that to me is so amazing. Like, I just love that idea of like, if you have money, if someone's giving you money to do something, use it for good. Use it to not just make the project you want to make, but maybe use it to give back to the community or the environment that you're working with. Use it to hire somebody that might not get that chance to be mentored under this project. Use it to give a small animation studio in the Philippines the ability to go to Tribeca Festival, the ability to have their project premiere at cons. Like this is for me what it's about. It's not just about taking, taking, taking for me, but giving back, giving back, giving back as much as possible. That is a nice statement in terms of giving back to the society. And I think it is something that many people, creators especially, need to actually add that in mind. We need to put humanity first, at least from my own perspective, especially when creating. For the project you mentioned, sorry, I did not catch the name. Lutao. I, I don't know. <laughs> Lut Tao, it's the science. Teach me out. It's uh, Lut Lut Tao. Tao. Yeah. Okay, great. So Lut Tao. Was that nominated for anything? It seems during my research, I came across it. It seemed it was nominated for an award, was it? I mean, the project has won many awards since it premiered. Social Impact Media Award for Immersive Film. It's won the New Media Award for the International Asian American Film Festival. It was nominated for the Positron Visionary Project. and It was a finalist for the VR Awards for VR Film of the Year. But I think for me, what I'm most proud about this project is that we did a special screening of it at the American Embassy in Manila on International Literacy Day for teachers all over the Philippines who wanted to celebrate International Literacy Day, as well as people who are interested in learning more about the project. And so we actually got to screen the experience. We sent everybody a link, but we also were able to do a panel discussion with the creators of the experience, with the people we collaborated in the Philippines, with the animation studio we collaborated with in the Philippines. And that to me was like one of the most special moments the project has had, because it was a way that we could reach not only people around the world, but specifically Filipinos. And Literacy Day is a big deal because the Yellow Boat of Hope organization who we collaborated with is an organization about access to education. You know, these children were swimming and walking long distances to get to school, so they built them boats. Some children didn't have access to school supplies, so they started getting them school supplies. Some districts and regions in the Philippines didn't have schools, so they started building schools. Like, this is just an amazing organization. So for them to be able to be recognized by the American Embassy, for them to be able to do a special event, for them to be able to talk about their work because of the project, that was really amazing for me. I see. Really inspiring. So let's jump a bit into the role of women in XR, right? And I would let you take the lead for that. I don't know if you're a feminist because there are certain females that are not. So I think I should ask, are you a feminist? Definitely. I think that men and women and everyone in between, whether you identify in a different way or whether you are somewhere like within the spectrum of gender, like everyone should be treated equally and in a humane way and should be given the same rights and the same pay and the same voice as much as possible. Right. Thank you so much for that. What sort of role do you see feminism playing in XR or in massive storytelling? What sort of role do you see feminism playing? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is, is a lot of film and a lot of television was built in the male gaze. I know recently there's been a big push to have female directors and have females at the front, but we have hundreds of years of a film industry that was built for the male, built by men, right? Like we had men behind the camera. We had men doing the editing. We had men who were the heroes of the movies. Like all of that means that it was all told from a very specific perspective. Even if you don't want to say it's true, it's true. Like the way that you film somebody's body, the way that you frame somebody's face, like it, there can be one that is very masculine and one that can be very feminine. And even the way you write a character, right? Like for so long, we had men writing female characters. And for so long, we had female characters not being given the same amount of lines and female characters not being given the same amount of agencies as their male colleagues on films. And so that's the reality of that industry. The reality of video game industry is very similar, right? If we look at a lot of video game documentaries, we look at the history of video games, it's very far and few between you see a female or a woman who has come forward as one of the founders of X or Y or Z and has been able to change the way that video game industry views women, even the way they draw women, even the way they showcase women in games. It's usually has been in the past very overly sexualized and very like specific to a different audience than a feminine audience audience. And so then I think that the question is, can XR change that narrative? XR and metaverse, it's newer. It's a little more unknown at this point. And so my belief is if we can get women in leadership, if we can get women founders, if we can get women making decisions about what VR and AR and the metaverse is like, how we make those pieces, how we present those pieces, how we allow the audience to come into those pieces, even if it's as simple as making avatars with different shapes of their bodies with avatars with different aspects of culture, like the ability for your avatar to have a hijab, the ability for your avatar to have a missing limb, the ability for your avatar to have a wheelchair, the ability for your avatar to have glasses, all of these things that we think about with the metaverse, that's really important because as we've seen is representation is so important. If people can see themselves in a space, if people can see themselves in a movie, if people can see themselves in a TV show, if people can see themselves in a video game, that's really important to engaging an audience. So it's not just good for humanity, it's also good for business. And so my hope and my dream and my goal being in this industry is being able to encourage women of all backgrounds. You don't have to have a game engine background. You don't have to have a film background. You can be an artist. You can be a teacher. You can be a lawyer. There's a place for you in this industry because it's such a new industry. We need activists. We need lawyers. We need business people. We need creatives. We need scientists, right? We need all these people to make XR and the metaverse inclusive and safe, right? Even now I I'm worried about, quote unquote, the colonialism of XR. Even now I'm worried about sort of the whitewashing of XR, the whitewashing of the metaverse. But even then, I'm also worried about the lack of ethics. Like I'm worried about people coming in and just creating these insane stories about sensationalization of people and real life events. And for example, like with Michelle's story of her getting her face shot, I never put a gun to your face. Like I never explicitly showed that moment, right? We use other ways of immersing you in the story. And the reality is, is immersion and interactivity is a very powerful tool, but with great power comes great responsibility. So how are we making sure our audience members don't walk away being traumatized? How do we make sure our audience members walk away feeling safe? These are all important parts of this. And so the reality is it could go a very bad way for us in XR and metaverse, whether it's masculine, whether it's colonialized, whether it's westernized, and it can all service a singular entity. 
entity. And that would be really sad and really frustrating. Mm. But on the other hand, it could go another way. And it takes just a couple people to help it go the other way. And so I'm hopeful and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the people who are working in this industry now and the people who have yet to join this industry can slowly help us move the other way versus allowing us to swing back towards the way that other industries have gone, how American politics have gone, how just the physical world has gone. If there is any way we can make the digital reality a safe, inclusive space for all types of people, a safe, inclusive space for Indigenous people, for women, for LGBTQIA, for people who are from all over the world, that to me would be successful. That was brilliantly put. And I would say three key elements that is currently needed would be inclusivity, adequate representation, and humanity at the heart of creation itself. How would you advise that women find opportunities in the space of XR and in the space of immersive experiences? I would say it depends on who you are and what you're passionate about, right? I would say that, you know, if you're a content creator, then I would point you towards Facebook Horizons or I'd point you through VR film or I'd point you to, you know, a game, a gamified experience in VR and help get get you inspired, right? If you are a filmmaker, I would point you in a different direction, right? I'd say like, look, you could have your thing premiering at Sundance. You can have your thing premiering here. If you're someone from the game industry, I'd point you towards like really amazing VR games that have been created and really amazing VR game studios. I think just because you are a woman, if you're listening to this and interested in getting involved, doesn't mean there's not an opportunity for you. And If you know who you are, if you know what you're passionate about, if you know what you're good at, or if you know what you're interested in learning more about, there's a space for you in the XR metaverse industry. I would say you can start first by looking at the different work on a Quest headset or looking at the different work on a Pico headset or a Vive headset. You could start by working and collaborating with a group of friends who are also interested. You could call and research VR companies that are in your area or in your country, right? You can find like game jams that are always happening. You can join Discord channels. You can join Facebook groups. There are so many places out there for you there's so many spaces that you can find yourself feeling connected to this industry. That being said, you might not make money at first, right? Like I worked group fitness when I went freelance for a while. I danced again in order to pay my bills, but I don't see any shame in that, right? I don't see any shame in having to be a waiter or working somewhere to pay your bills and to survive while you're still involved in this industry. I don't want everyone to think suddenly if they get involved, it'll be a get rich quick. But that being said, like that doesn't mean you still don't have a place and that you can't slowly work your way into getting your bills paid through XR and through the metaverse. It just might not happen tomorrow for you. And and again, I think that's totally fine. Like I walked away from Time Magazine with an Emmy and worked on a few projects and then it was very dry and there was nothing to work on. And I had to go back to group fitness for a while until more projects picked up and I was able to pay my bills again. And I say that very bluntly because I think a lot of times people hide the fact that you don't always make money doing the thing you love and that's okay. As long as you can continue being involved in that thing in some way, shape or form while you still make money so you can survive, that means you're still living. Thank you very much for that. I think many people are tied to a certain narrative that they've even forgotten how that narrative was created, right? 
currently, from your perspective, what do you think the role of men is in supporting this push for inclusivity in XR, especially when it comes to women? How do you think men can support? Because I am sure many men would not see the downsides or the lack of representation going on. But for those that are listening, how do you think they can support women and at least help them get to the level that they need to get to in any way? I think it depends on the person. If you look around and you notice that a large group of your team are not female, then that's the first place to start, right? If you are a business owner, if you're a studio owner, or if you're someone who's working on an independent project and you have funding, how can you make sure that the people around your table are as diverse as possible? Not just diverse in backgrounds, but diverse in genders, right? So you can start there. I would say if you know this technology, reach out to your local universities. See if you can do community kind of events, even if it's once a month over Zoom, where you're taking questions or you're giving tutorials in these atmospheres where people are really interested in learning, like in a university environment or in a non-institutionalized community. So again, like a Discord channel or Facebook group or Slack group or Google group, right? Like how can you find the areas and offer and lend your support? But also if you're in a position of power, for example, if that's a position of power to give money, or if that's a position of power to invite somebody into a game jam or invite some people into an accelerator, right? Look at your applicants and look and say, are we getting the right amount of applicants for every single inclusivity? Are we getting people from this region? Are we getting women? Are we getting people of this religion? And if you're not seeing that, then don't just say, well, they're not out there. Like take that extra step to be like, let me figure out who runs the program out in that region. Let me figure out who's managing the community of women. And let's see if they want to apply to these things. Let's see if they want to apply to these money opportunities of grants or funds. Let's see if they want to apply to this accelerator or apply to this hackathon or brain jam or game jam. So it's important not only to recognize that something is successful, but it's also important to recognize and prioritize that something is diverse and inclusive as well. Thank you very much. That was perfect. So let's jump into the metaverse. What are your thoughts on the hype surrounding the metaverse? I'm sure many people will still see it as an hype. So what are your thoughts surrounding the hype around the metaverse? And how do you think Facebook's name change contributed to that hype? The hype of the metaverse is interesting because there's a lot of metaverses that already exist. Minecraft, Fortnite. A metaverse is basically, to me, just an online platform that is spatialized. So it's a 3D environment that you can move around, whether you're moving around using your keyboard, you're moving around using a game controller, or you're moving around in a headset using VR technology. The interface of how you're moving around in this 3D environment can change. But the reality is it's a connected online platform that is 3D. Usually you'll have some sort of avatar that represents you. And on that platform, you can do two things. You can socialize with other people and connect with them, get to know them, learn more about them. Two, there's some sort of exchange of commerce. So that means there's some sort of exchange of money, whether you're paying Fortnite money to do upgrades, whether you're paying Minecraft in a certain way. There needs to be some sort of exchange of commerce because what you're creating is basically an online social center. You're creating a space where society can move. And what makes society move? It's when people are connecting and talking to each other, making business deals, getting to know each other more, learning more about them versus me, but also when there's some sort of economy that's moving through the space. And that's where a lot of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and Web3 and all of those words like NFTs and all of those kind of hype words you're hearing That is all basically, how can we create an economy online? An economy 
online that doesn't just use banks and like physical paper, right? But how do we, a digital economy, does one red PNG equal $1 million? I don't think so, but for a minute we thought it did, right? So that's the reality of what we're trying to figure out because for a while our ancestors were like, hey, I have this bar of gold. And this person's like, oh, I've got some salt. Let's trade salt for bar of gold because they didn't realize a bar of gold is actually a lot more valuable than some salt. But for a while in our old currency system, we had to figure out what was valuable and what was not valuable. And that's kind of what we're figuring out now. But before we figured out our economy, this idea of banks were very unstable. A lot of people used to give their money to banks and then banks would give that money away elsewhere because they were going into debt. Same issues that's going on in cryptocurrency. Is the metaverse a hype? I think it's a hype for this cycle of people who want to talk about how the metaverse is future. Because the reality is the metaverse isn't a future. The metaverse is an ever evolving idea that we've already built underneath ourselves, right? I also hate the term metaverse. I just think it's very alienating to people who are not familiar with this industry because it sounds like a science fiction term, right? You could basically call it a digital reality. You live in a physical reality. Why not live in a digital reality, right? You interact with people, you go buy a coffee and you get money. You give somebody money, they give you a coffee. You do that in the physical world. Maybe one day you could do that in the digital world. That idea of exchanging ideas, that idea of exchanging business deals, and that idea of exchanging money. I wanted to ask, so you see the metaverse in an economical perspective, more than every other way that other people see it. People have their ways of seeing it, but I think you are emphasizing more on the economic perspective of the metaverse, and you find that as the most substantial part of it. Is that correct? It's the social and the economic, right? Because when I say making business deals, I don't mean they're exchanging monies. For example, like if I'm speaking to someone who lives in a different country and we're appearing as avatars to each other and we're walking around together in this digital 3D park and suddenly we sit down at a bench and I look over at him and I'm like, hey, like, you know, let's make a deal. And we have a verbal agreement in a digital universe, very similar to as if we were having a physical agreement in a physical universe. That's really tangible, right? And then there will be steps that get followed up after that. So it's not just the exchange of money, but the exchange of ideas, the exchange of people's ideologies is so key to, to the metaverse. I think that the reason why I value these two things so much is because that's why people are so hyped about it, because people see it's a way to make money. People see it's a way to make money and it's a way that money will move. So that's why there's suddenly been this big push because we live in a very capitalist society where people are like, why is this suddenly important? It wasn't that cool when kids were online making Fortnite videos together, but now suddenly it's cool because Justin Bieber did a performance and it made millions of dollars. And now we know that people are willing to go to a concert to go see a virtual metaverse version of Justin Bieber and listen to his music. And they think that's just as valuable as in the physical reality, right? So that's a big moment for people to be like, oh, money can be had here. And then that suddenly implodes. And one person who was like, oh, we can make money here is Meta or Facebook or however we want to call them. Do you have an aversion towards capitalism? I don't know how to define it, but tell me your view on capitalism. Because so far, at least from what you said and from what can be seen, capitalism, from my perspective, to a limited extent, drives innovation. Because when the person is after profits, then they will probably do as much to make sure that technology or that product gets to the end stage, even if capitalism is the main drive behind it. So what's your thought on capitalism and do you think it drives innovation? I think capitalism is somebody chasing money and not chasing the betterment of humanity. And so capitalism drives innovation if someone sees the ability to make money. Does that mean that innovation is always the best innovation for humanity? Yes and no. 
somebody realized that horses weren't the best way for people to move around anymore. And they realized they can make a lot of money if they could make a machine that would do that for people. Was that good for people? It was. Was that good for the environment? It wasn't because now we're mining resources and now we're expounding pollution versus if that person was thinking, how can I create a way that not only services people, but also services the environment and also services the resources of the world and make something that runs on, I don't know, water or air, right? And not just on this highly deadly substance that I have to mine from the earth, right? So does capitalism lead innovation? Yes. Does that innovation always serve humanity? No, because capitalism is only interested in profit. So for example, is does having a 40-hour work week service humanity? I don't think it does. Does it service having a profit? Yes, it does. Versus being like, well, why don't we have a two-day work week or three-day work week? And just know that production and progress is going to be down, but at least human life as a whole can be higher, right? We're valuing one thing over the other, and that leads to constant frustration. I mean, that can be kind of said throughout every little thing of the society, at least here in the U.S. Would you say the biggest challenge is in immersive storytelling or working in excellence? What do you think the biggest challenge is? The biggest challenge is definitely accessibility. And we're not just talking about accessibility to headsets. I'm talking about access to Wi-Fi that can run these headsets. I'm talking about access to the ability to say, hey, you can use this headset, but can you also know how to set up the headset? Do you know how to download the experience on the headset, right? There's so many layers of accessibility. So I think working in this technology, accessibility to strong, fast Wi-Fi that can run some of these experience, access to the headsets, but also access to the knowledge of how to use those headsets and how to set up those headsets um, is definitely one of the most difficult challenges. Thank you very much for the answer. My last question for you would be, looking to the future, what do you think XR ecosystem or the metaverse, but basically XR ecosystem would look like a decade from now, or at least two decades from now? What do you hope it will look like? It's a great question. I think that our phones, which currently sit in our pockets, will slowly become devices that we wear on our faces, whether that's devices we take on and off constantly, whether that's a contact lens. It'll be something that we integrate with the world seamlessly with our physical and digital environment, right? So as I'm looking for places to eat food and I'm walking down the street, I'm suddenly seeing Yelp reviews pop up at me. Or while I'm driving in my car, I suddenly have Google Map directions in my windshield, right? Like basically the interface right now that's very separate from A to B, right? I have my very physical environment and I have my very digital environment will be more integrated together and that there will be a lot more of this idea now that people can say, now that I'm more integrated into my environment for physical and digital, I'm also spending more time potentially in a all digital environment. I'm spending more time inside of a VR headset or I'm spending more time taking meetings inside of a VR platform versus just a Zoom or a Google Meet platform. Not saying they're replacing those platforms. They just tend to spend more time in those platforms. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Michaela. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, you gave really awesome answers. And I do hope the listeners really learn a lot from you. I know I did learn a lot, and I'm sure they would. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Feel free to stay in touch. Feel free thank to reach out to me. I'm totally an open door. Thank you very much. See you soon. See you soon. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-